This is Real Estate Rookie, episode number 107. You need a substantial down payment to even get into a home. And so especially when it's an investment property, sometimes 20 to 40%. This was our way to get into properties and to utilize and leverage um, the cash flows from short-term rentals without actually having to purchase them. My name is Ashley Kerr, and I'm here with my co-host, Tony Robinson, and we are getting even closer to the Bigger Pockets conference. I am super, super excited to finally get in person with all of the rookie listeners and just kind of meet and shake hands and talk real estate for, what, three whole days. So it's going to be a fantastic time. <laughs> yeah, I can't wait just to talk real estate nonstop for three days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so it'll be a good time. And you guys send a, uh, Tony and I a message or reach out to us if you guys are going to be joining us at the Bigger Pockets conference. We can't wait to see you guys. There are so many cool things planned in the evenings and tons of great sessions throughout the day. So we really look forward to having you guys there. But today we are talking a Tony's Jam here. We are talking short-term rentals with Kai. And Tony, what was your favorite takeaway? So Kai's got so many like golden nuggets throughout this episode. And Kai's a YouTuber. He's a real estate investor. And he's just got like a really, really, I think, articulate way of doing business. Like he articulates that really well. But he talks about how he got started with like house hacking back in 2008 and how that he built major wealth through that whole process. He talks about rental arbitrage and kind of how he used that to get started in the world of short-term rental investing. And he talked about land hacking, which is something I hadn't really heard of before, but it's a new strategy that like has my head spinning right now. So just so many good nuggets dropped in this episode. Yeah, he does a great job of putting out points for rookie investors to take away too, like building up security if you're afraid, how to get around that obstacle different things like that, and just getting started in general. He also talks about growing up in his childhood and having a poor dad as in sense of financially not getting it as, you know, rich in the rich dad, poor dad book. So it's just a really great episode. Tony and I are still like excited about just all of the, the good content he gave us and is giving you guys. And you guys got to listen until the end because like right before we wrap up, Kai goes into this mindset piece and that is just like golden, golden, golden. So make sure you guys stick around to the very end of the episode. Remember when you had to pay to get a Leeds phone number? It was like the dark ages until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right. Get high quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal do not call list. Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a Deal Machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com BP. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com BP. Remember when you had to pay to get a lead's phone number? It was like the dark ages. Until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right. Get high quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal do not call list. Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a Deal Machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com BP. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com slash BP. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Well, let's get on to the show. 
Kai, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Can you start off telling everyone a little bit about yourself and how you got started in real estate? Yeah. So I got started right out of undergrad, actually, 21 years old. I had no experience in real estate at all. Actually, uh, my family there, have you guys read Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki? My family, my dad was absolute poor dad, loving, sweetheart of a guy, just didn't know anything about money. And so 21 years old, I graduated, came back home, lived with the folks for a little bit. And then I was like, okay, I need a place to stay. And I started looking at rent prices, places to rent out. And I realized that they were higher than mortgage rates. And then I'm like, oh, I'm going to save money. I might as well just buy a place. And that just kind of led into a whole world of going into the rabbit hole of real estate and then house hacking and all that stuff. What did you go to school for? I originally went to uh, school for (laughs) uh, mechanical engineering, switched to civil, and then settled on construction engineering and then business management. So I switched it a couple times. I have to say, at least your last two degrees probably have helped with your real estate investing, though. Construction management and business management, knowing how to run a business. You know, it's just like it was one of those things that you don't really plan for. But absolutely, it's more of the uh, project management side. But I always tell this to because I got I got involved. Maybe we'll touch on it later. I got involved in higher education as well. And I always tell students or tell people, it's like, listen, I don't remember anything from undergrad or grad school. But what I do remember is how my brain works and how to think and how to learn new stuff. And so I don't really remember the like accounting basics or anything like that. I don't remember anything from engineering. I haven't practiced it for 15, 16, 17 years, but uh, I remember how to dissect problems and then how to figure out solutions. And that's one of the best things I learned through the higher education system. So it definitely helped with real estate. Yeah, Kai, it's so funny. I, I actually followed a similar path. I started my undergrad as an electrical engineering major. I was in the middle of my junior year when I decided that I actually hated being an engineer. And then I also switched to business. But what you said was something that you hear a lot as, a, as an engineering student is that your undergrad isn't even really meant to teach you everything there is to know about being an, an engineer. It's to teach you how to solve problems and how to be a critical thinker. And those are the skills that parlay really well into the real world. Oh, yeah, I can't agree with that more. I did an internship. So I did. Uh, I was doing a heavy civil project, this giant bridge highway project. And it was an internship at 19 years old. And that's when I realized, I'm like, this is not the world for me. But yeah. Yeah, it was always about figuring out the solutions. And I think that's honestly for entrepreneurs transitioning, bridging that gap to entrepreneurs, like you have to be a problem solver and critical thinker. I don't think it's possible to be a good uh, principal, good entrepreneur without that skill set. So engineering definitely helped me with that, even though I hated the field. Love my engineers, just not for me. So with your house hack, what did your family think about this as to you're going to buy a property, you're going to be living with other people? What were their thoughts? They were just supportive at first. They're just like, okay, that's great. He's really relatively young. Hopefully he gets into something decent. At that time, it was 2006. And so I got one of those crazy 0% down interest only arms. I think it was like a five or seven year arm, adjustable rate mortgage. And so I got that and my fam- my folks didn't know anything about that stuff. So they just let me sign. And then I got into this home with zero down. Um, interest only. And it actually became one of the best things ever because my int- my mortgage rate was so low that I was really able to hack it and actually create an income or uh, yeah, basically make a couple extra hundred bucks a month once I started hacking it. But yeah, they were super supportive and they started realizing that I first rented out a room to my brother and then uh, my girlfriend moved in and then I rented out to friends and that type of stuff. And then even had some folks staying on the couch every once in a while. You know, you're 21, 22 years old. It's like, you don't need a lot of space. And I had a nice new house. So Super supportive though. What would be your advice to a rookie investor that is 21 or really young and they want to get into house hacking? What were some of the things that you took away from your first house hack and advice you can give them to find their own? I would say definitely find house hacking is, it's always nicer when you know the people that you're going to be house hacking with. And so having some sort of strategy set up, whether it's going to be, for example, I work with a couple of students and clients right now where they're doing it with family members. So cousins, brothers, sisters, that type of stuff. That makes it easier because you already know the individuals. When people start talking about house hacking with strangers like Craigslist, going on Zillow and trying to just meet random people. And now you're sharing a space that can get a little bit more iffy. And so I just be like, be mindful of what you're trying to do. If you're trying to house hack and share, you know, your three bedroom home or townhome and you guys want to be sharing a common space, make sure that you're ready to share it with strangers that may not follow your expectations. Or if you want to do it with strangers, maybe set it up in a manner where you have separate living spaces, like an ADU, a guest house, a basement, 
maybe a converted garage or something like that, where you have a little bit more privacy if you want to do it with complete strangers. And also for some folks, this is a safety issue too. They don't feel as comfortable around Craigslist roommates. So I, I love the way you got started, Kai, but I, I want to set the table a little bit for our listeners here. So first, let us know what market you're investing in primarily right now. My primary market now, is, well, it's short-term rentals, but since 2020, we had to convert some of our properties over to mid and long-term rentals, which are not my favorite. I've done that for a long time, but primarily I do short-term rentals and more specifically around very unique stays or very different type of stays. Got it. And what cities are you investing in primarily? I'm primarily in around the Portland and the Vancouver, Portland, Oregon, and then Vancouver, Washington area. And so I usually go outside of the city limits now. And then what does your portfolio look like today? Portfolio looks like we have about, uh, I was just counting it up. We have eight properties and we have about 12 doors. And then we're about to close on two more properties here that are land deals. Actually, sorry, one land deal. And then it's lease and hack, which we'll talk about more. And then one more that we're looking at that's going to be acreage and kind of a fixer upper. All right. So there, there, you just went through a lot right there, right? I'm sure people said might be spinning a little sorry, bit. So sorry. I want to, I guess, just kind of take us through the flow of Kai's journey. And then we can kind of nail down on, on some of these, these more kind of unique deals that you're doing, land hacking. Like, what the heck does that even mean? So you start with this house hack. What does the progression look like from there? Just give us like the 30,000 foot view of some of the deals you knocked out. Yeah. So it started off with the first one at 21 years old, and that was the zero percent or the, the interest only zero down. And then from that, I started, I had a goal of, I wanted to get my, basically my payments or my, my monthly expenses down to just $2,000. And my mortgage at the time was like, a, I think it was like $1,100 or $10,000 or something like that. HOA is what kills us. Anyway, so I figured out the house hack. I basically was paying no mortgage once I was renting out the spaces. And then I just kept saving up money. And then 2007, 2008 hit. And that rocked us because I just saw my value decreasing. But at that time, once I saw my place decreasing, I was also either foolish or wise enough to also see that some great pieces of property were also opening up in the city, city center. So at that time, 2007, 2008, we have a couple areas in the, smell, in the heart of the city that were very, very expensive. It's like, it was considered kind of like the financial district, the entrepreneurial district where all of the quote unquote wealthy or successful well-to-do folks moved into. And they had overbuilt significantly. And so I went in there at 23, 24. And at the time I didn't have enough work experience. My income was not high enough. So I basically convinced my parents had to do a PowerPoint presentation and had them co-sign with me. I was like, Hey, not only will I, if you co-sign with me, I will give you 4% on the money that you loan me to get the down payment. And so at that time they're making like I think it was like 0.5% or 0.1% in their money market account because we were in the, the recession. And so I'm like, I'll give you 4% because I already ran through the numbers for the, the house hacking. And so they're like, okay, fine. And so went and bought like this penthouse style condo and brand new construction that they're just trying to move the units. And I bought that. And then that was probably one of the best decisions that we made. And then also as a family, we also bought another condo that was on the other side of the river. And those were the two that made a cornerstone of the whole business because that's how I got into short-term rentals. That's where we built a ton of equity. And then at that time in 2008, 2009, short-term rentals was not very big outside of like vacationing areas like the beach or the mountains or stuff like that. It wasn't really big inside the city. And I was like literally the first of like maybe five or six Airbnbs or, or VR at the time it was HomeAway or VRBO. And so basically we were just charging whatever that we wanted to charge, like $500 a night, $600 a night for a two bedroom place. And then everybody was booking. We were booked out like a year ahead of schedule or a year out. And so that was able to fund the next project. And then we got into basically arbitrage. And so from there, we started acquiring properties. My business partner and I, we started acquiring properties through leases. And then we started managing people's properties. And that, that just created cash flows for us to keep on expanding. And that was a, that was a large part of our business for a long time. Hey, that is awesome to hear. And I definitely want to go over all of those things. But the first thing that stood out to me was the presentation you did to your parents. We talk a lot about of presenting to potential partners, presenting to money lenders. What are some things that you put in that presentation to show your parents that they can trust you and this is a good investment for them? Yeah, that's 
That's a great thing. I, t- I talk a lot about this too. I come with my financial markers or people's financial markers. And my folks obviously knew me already. And I, I was pretty disciplined. Actually, I was very disciplined at 24 years old, 23 years old at the time I gave the presentation. And I created just the basically, it was on Keynote. It was just a free PowerPoint. I didn't have Microsoft Office. It was just on Keynote on app, my Apple MacBook at that time. I showed them the, the, what the market was at before the recession. And I showed them the current market where it was at. So it showed like this difference of like maybe, I think it was like 45 or 50% difference, what it was valued at before and where it was at now. Because again, they had overbuilt. And I said, I believe in five years, this is what's going to happen. I think it's going to go back to normal in five years. And I showed them the difference and how much equity could be built. And I showed them how I was going to make my payments. That was the biggest thing that I was concerned about was that, can you make the mortgage payments on two homes? And so I walked them through the cash flows, the revenues. I'm like, hey, this place is already rented out. I'm making money on it. Even if that doesn't work out, I know I can rent it out for this price. That will for sure get booked out, even though I'll be losing maybe $300 a month. I can easily cover that with my salary. And then I'll be making all this money over here with this other property. And so with that all said, when they saw that the numbers made sense, and then also I already had at 23 years old, I'd had nearly an 800 uh, credit score. And I had savings stacked up and they just knew that I wasn't very, I wasn't buying watches or shoes or cars or anything. So they knew that I was very financially disciplined. So that helped a lot too. But man, that presentation, I didn't expect that I would have to do that, but that sealed the deal for me with my folks. Cause usually, you know, you think that your parents would always back you up. But I remember I went up and asked them, I was like, Hey, will you sign, co-sign with me on this like $400,000 condo? And they're like, no, are you crazy? I think that what you just said can relate to your spouse or your significant other too, that if you're trying to get them on board with getting started in real estate investing, everything you just said, you could put together a presentation because actually looking at the numbers and visualizing it and seeing the breakdown can make such an impact on somebody than just hearing you talk and spin off numbers and all just rattling around in their brain. A lot of people are more visual learners and that's such a great idea to do that presentation. 100%. 100%. And I see a lot of folks doing it now too, is like, they're usually one person's on board, right? One person's the entrepreneurs like high up in the clouds, like, dude, we can do this. We can do this. We can do this. And then you have the other partner who's just like, okay, let's slow your roll a little bit. We've got kids. We've got a mortgage. We've got this and that. How are we going to do all this? And so absolutely. So when they actually go through, and I'm talking about my students here, when they actually go and they put together the market analysis, they run the numbers, they do the unit economics, and then they can show it to their partner. It does relieve. Now they don't always get their way, but it does like, they make it a more of a manageable and uh, a better conversation than just having these ideas thrown back and forth. So Kai, it sounds like you had some early success with house hacking, and then that kind of led you into the world of short-term rentals. And now, if I'm not mistaken, you've kind of really, like you said, focused on creating these really unique stays in the short-term rental space. So before we get to that, I want to talk a little bit about rental arbitrage and what exactly does that mean in the world of short-term rentals? Because you you mentioned it, but there's probably some listeners that aren't familiar with what that term is and, and what it means. Sure, sure. So rental arbitrage, it's basically where you find somebody, a, a homeowner, a landowner who owns a house or townhome, condo, whatever it is, and you negotiate a contract with them where you lease the property with the understanding that you will then short-term rent it out. Okay. There's two ways of doing it. Either you pay them a lease upfront. So let's say it's like $2,000 a month and you just pay them a set $2,000 a month. And then whatever you make on top of that, you get a keep. So if you make $5,000 a month, you pay the landowner or the homeowner $2,000, you keep the $3,000. Another way of doing it too that we have done is that we did a profit sharing or a revenue split. And so we'll like, we'll manage, we'll do everything and we'll give you, we'll do a a 40-60 split. Homeowner keeps 40, we keep 60 and we do all the work, we manage everything. And so those were basically the two contracts and it was all negotiable on how we set it up, whether it was based on, we brought in our own furniture, the homeowner provided their own furniture. We provide the cleaning service or they had a cleaner that they wanted to use. Whatever that was, we always negotiate or baked it into the contract. But at the end of the day, it was our way of acquiring several properties or multiple properties in areas that we wanted to focus in without actually having to come. Because remember, at that time or even throughout the 2010 to 2016, 17, you needed a substantial down payment to even get into a home. Usually it was at least 20%. And so especially when it's an investment property, sometimes 20 to 40%. So 
This was our way to get into properties and to utilize and leverage um, the cash flows from short-term rentals without actually having to purchase them. I love that approach, right? And you see a lot of folks who are going the rental arbitrage route. Short-term rentals are my kind of focus right now as well, but we've never dabbled in the world of arbitrage. But the more people that I talk to that are doing it, the more... I guess, intrigued I am by the process, right? Because like you said, like we leverage a lot of vacation home mortgages to, to buy our short-term rentals. But even at that, it's still 10% down, right? So on a half a million dollar house, that's $50,000 and you got your furniture costs, you know, your closing costs, so it can get expensive. And if you're able to just sign a lease on a property and how many of those can you do, can you set up with $50,000? So the money definitely goes, goes a lot further. So Kai, are you still doing arbitrage today? Yes, so we still have... I believe we have three or four sites right now. I think three, and we're, we're about to get rid of them um, because it's not our focus anymore. The one big thing that's in your corner, Tony, is that when you purchase property is you build equity, right? And that's a big, and we'll talk more about the land hacking model later, but cash flow is great. Cash flow is fantastic. But I've also noticing that especially all of our properties that we had done we're inside the city and the city limits is just becoming such a competitive environment. I'm sure we'll talk about this more too, is that we're wanting to move outside of that and be able to create higher barriers of entry in our own space. And that's more of the unique spaces. But um, I think arbitrage is a phenomenal way for folks who are newer into the space and want to get into real estate and jump in without having to, like you said, put $50,000 down, $100,000 down. We're not even talking about the insurance or the furniture or the linens or the cleaning crews or anything. If you just want to start and you don't have a ton of money and you can get a lease or negotiate a lease or work with a homeowner, it's a great way of not just getting your business and introducing yourself into the world of real estate and small business, but also how to manage a successful rental. Because Tony, as you as you know, and, and uh, Ashley, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it too, but the other side of Airbnb and hosting and VRBO and HomeAway and Bookies.com and all these other sites, the management side, I would argue, is probably more difficult to do its long-term successfully than just getting a piece of property and furnishing it, right? And so I think that's very important for a lot of new entrepreneurs and new hosts to understand and learn about the short-term rental market. And it's a great way to get started. I love what you said about the equity side. And honestly, that's what's kind of, I guess, maybe prevented me from going the arbitrage route. So for example, the very first property that we purchased in Joshua Tree as a short-term rental, we're selling it. And we should close on that this Friday, actually. We bought that property at a purchase price of $295. Our total cash investment, like down payment, closing costs, startup costs, was somewhere just south of $50,000. Right, so we had this $50,000 investment on a $300,000 property. We're selling that same house for $470,000. So like after everything clears, we're probably going to net somewhere close to about 170 on that property. 170 is a down payment on almost a $900,000 house, right? At 20% down. So we were able to take this little $295,000 property in Joshua Tree and now parlay that into most likely a five bedroom cabin with a pool in the Smoky Mountains that's going to do three, maybe four times as much revenue. And we didn't even own that property for an entire year, right? We bought that last September. We're selling it now in July. Right. So that's kind of the benefits that come. Now, obviously, the market's been crazy. So that wasn't all me being a genius or anything. Right. I'm, I'm a little lucky there, too. But that, that's some of the benefits that come along with with actually owning the property. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's just out of curiosity. Is, are the new owners using it as a short term rental or are they buying it as a home? I would assume they're using it as a short term rental. What we're doing and, and this is kind of going to be our possibly our model moving forward in Joshua Tree is we're selling this completely turnkey. So it was fully furnished. We did a lot of updates, both inside and outside. We're even giving them the listing photos. We said, hey, you guys can have the professional photos that we took. Like, So literally on day one, they could start accepting guests at that property if they wanted to. So I, I'm almost certain that's what they'll be doing with it. What Are they still going to cash flow nicely, even at their new purchase price based on your... Assuming they get like a 10% down loan, even at 20%, right? Like that property is still going to cash flow pretty, pretty nicely. That's yeah. awesome. That's really cool. Yeah. What you just hit on is this is what I tell a lot of folks in the beginning who are first starting off, especially. So I don't, I don't know uh, your background, my background, my family were refugees. We grew up very, very poor. And uh, like I said, poor dad in terms of understanding of finances and strategies and, and money. But this is the fastest way what you just explained. And this is how I got it too, is equity and real estate is the fastest way to build real wealth, generational wealth. And like by the time that my kids or my grandkids get up and hopefully we teach them well, is that they'll have 
tens of millions of dollars just based off the equity off our properties alone, right? And that's not the cash flows. That's nothing else. It's just over decades, you just accrue that stand that set three to 6%, assuming that nothing happens to the United States or the crazy, you know, the world, it's just going to keep on growing over time. And you got to have big bubbles like right now where you can take advantage of whether it's 2021 or back in 2015, 2016, you have this huge amount of equity that you can take it, take advantage of and then leverage it into something else that's even bigger. So that's awesome. And you did it in 12 months. That's insane. Ty, before we go on to what you're doing now to actually build that wealth for your family, back to the arbitrage real quick. I do have one property that I do Airbnb arbitrage for, short-term rental, but it's with somebody that I know very well. It's in an apartment complex. He's the owner of it. I used to manage it. So it's really loosey-goosey relationship there. But for a rookie investor, how are they approaching homeowners with this concept and putting this deal together? What's the first step if somebody wants to start doing this? You know, I'd reach out. Honestly, it's you got to reach out to your network. That's how I did it. And there's a lot of people that do it in different ways. And I've found great success through just networking. And I tell this, it's, it's weird. It's hard for folks to grasp this because it's not like it's just a button that you push and you automatically get deals. But being kind and then having proven results will net you way more deals than anything else that I've found, right? So once you, my, our contacts have always been a friend of a friend or a friend of our real estate agent or somebody else. It's like, hey, connect with these guys. They know what they're doing. They're doing mine and they can really help you out. And then we got to a point where we were getting deals that were just turning down because we're like, nah, that's not really an area. No, we don't really want it. We don't have our system set up an hour away from the city. We can't do that. And so for folks, I'd say, if you want to get started doing something right now, I'd say start hitting up the people that you know or the contacts that you know and see if anybody who has an extra house, right? Even somebody who has a long-term rental house or a second home or third home that they're long-term renting out, approach them like, hey, you know, next time that the lease is up or your long-term tenant moves out, consider giving me a call. And I'd love to consider talking to you and renting it from you and then talk to you about how Airbnb or short-term rental could actually net you more money at the end of the day. And I can manage that for you. But I don't have, I didn't take that approach where we cold called people or we went into apartment buildings and rented out like five or six units or anything like that. That wasn't our forte. Ours was a lot more small business mom and pop style and built it around relationships, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I think that you just said one of the biggest pieces of advice we like to give is tell anyone and everybody what you're doing or what you're trying to do so that you attract those people that come to you and say, hey, I have this property that maybe we could work together on it or something like that. Absolutely. That's awesome. Yeah. So what are you doing now? How have you pivoted your business from doing arbitrage into, I think you mentioned land contracts? Yeah. So land hacking. So this is actually a term that I've been doing it since 2014, 2015 is when I first started getting into it because I started doing property hacks. We started looking at properties like we were just talking before. I think we call it house hacking. You know, you rent out bedrooms, you rent out a space. I call it property hacking is when you kind of graduate and you start converting a garage into a legal living space or a basement and you separate, you put in walls. And so you have two or three living areas on one property that are private spaces. Okay. And then land hacking is you're taking it to a whole nother level where it's no longer about just creating spaces for people to live or stay or visit. It's now creating multiple income streams off of one property. And so a lot of people usually or typically think of one door, one property, or whether it's a single family home, maybe even a duplex or even multifamily um, homes on one property. And what I like to start thinking about what we're doing now is we're looking at properties as not one door, two doors per property. We're looking at as six, seven, eight, nine, ten income streams per property. And so how we get there, it could be rentals like a standard home like this with a, an ADU or a guest house, or it could be a dome tent, it could be a safari tent. It could also be farming bamboo or leasing out a part of the land for an organic farmer, or even have a Christmas tree farmer, another piece of the, of the acreage. And so all of these ways of funneling different types of revenues into your business bank account off of one property allows you to maximize the leverage that you've created on that one property already. Because I've always tell, I always say to folks, listen, real estate is something, you know, there's a lot of things that you don't need. You probably don't need to literally pay attention to physics, algebra, geometry, even though it's really good that teaches you how to think, you don't really use it on a day-to-day -day basis. 
Every single person in a civilized world needs to understand real estate because you need shelter over your head. You need to provide a safe place for your family, for your kids. And so you have to understand it or you're going to be at the mercy of the market and landlords and the banks for the rest of your life. So if you have to understand something, why don't you make a business and make money off of it? So if you're going to leverage like what Tony brought up earlier, $50,000, and you have to go and put a down payment on a home for your family to live in, why not consider leveraging that same $50,000 for a down payment into a property that generates you two or three income streams, maybe even five or six income streams? Now you have a lot more flexibility financially, and you can create a business for yourself that's a lot more freeing than your, for me, a seven to seven job. Does that make sense? Now I'm thinking about like all the ways I can divvy up my land in Joshua Tree to like start adding. Like, can people farm in Joshua Tree? I don't, I don't know, but we'll, we'll find a way. We'll make it happen. Yeah. So Kai, you also talked about unique stays, and this is becoming super, super important in the world of short-term rentals. Like, so for those of you, the rookies that are listening that aren't super familiar with the Airbnb platform, they rolled out a big update this past summer or this summer. And one of the things that they allow you to do on the Airbnb site now is search based on the entire world, pretty much, right? Before you had to enter a location to say, this is the city, this is the area that I want to go. Now you can just hit a button that says, I'm flexible. And what they'll do is just show you all the really cool, unique stays around the globe. So Airbnb is really pushing to elevate the visibility of these unique stays within the platform because they they know obviously that A, that's what draws a lot of people into the platform. B, that's how they can continue to separate themselves from a traditional like Marriott Hilton type stay. So Kai, what are some of the maybe more unique stays that you've developed? And I guess kind of where do you see that unique stay going within your own portfolio? Yeah, absolutely. So mine, my forte were container homes or are container homes. And so this place that we're sitting in right now is essentially a container home. And then if you watch the channel or just on the other side of these walls right here, I've got four containers that are under construction right now. That's uh, been kind of tough in this weird market of construction and materials. We should have set it up so we could get a home tour. I know, I know. I wish I could just grab the camera and walk you around. So this place right now was designed to be 10 containers. And then that one's gonna be four containers. And then just down the hill, I know I'm pointing at nothing here, but just down the hill is a platform where we'll be putting a dome tent. And so the unique stays is I got into it again, Tony, kind of like you, is that I got into it because I was interested in it. I kind of, I saw it as a good equity play. I had no idea that it was going to become the future. I shouldn't say I had no idea, but I didn't think that Airbnb was going to move so drastically in this direction. I honestly thought that single family homes, condos inside the city were going to be the staple for this business, because that's where everybody wanted to go. They want to go in the city. And then I got all this acreage outside of the city, about 35 minutes outside the city. And then I set this up and I already knew the numbers in this area. You know, it was occupancy rates of like maybe 40%, 30% with uh, average nightly rates around like $60, $70 a night. And I put this up and then all of a sudden we're hitting 100% occupancy rates at like $150 a night, Right. 100% occupancy rate at $175 a night. And then you're like, oh my gosh, what's happening? Like, it's not the market. And then what we realize is that we accidentally created a market in this place by being so unique and so different from everybody else, right? Like literally everybody else was like either a basement, a small guest house, or a farmhouse that they were renting out. And it was not like a nice farmhouse, like a dingy country farmhouse. And then all of a sudden you have this brand new modern container home that overlooks a lake and valley views and a sunset. And then people are wanting to experience that, right? And so the unique stays are not so much just about the uniqueness of the structure itself, but it's more about the overall experience that you can give people and people are willing to pay for that. And so what we realized is then my business mindset started going and who's our customer? What are our numbers look like? What's the unit economics? And then what's, what are people really paying for? And then that's how we start diving deeper and we start taking on these new projects. And now we're doing like floating A-frames. So I'm going to do a floating tent or a floating dome tent soon. We've got the platform deck down there for the glamp site. And a lot of this is inspired by over at Rob Bill, mutual friend of ours, talking to him and seeing what he went through is learning from other people who are experts in their own niche and learning from them and then kind of borrowing or stealing their ideas a little bit. And so that's what we're doing now. So now we're shifting a little bit away from just 
container homes, but we're shifting into like, okay, how do we make more unique stays? And that's our next big project where we're creating like literally floating homes on top of like a pond where people can experience a totally different experience, but in the same area. Does that make sense? My biggest takeaway from that was that you are creating a destination. Yes. So location really doesn't matter to you because you're creating that destination. You're making it one. You are being the location. So I think it is so cool. And I think a lot of times people don't think out of the box like that, that, okay, well, what market would be a hot Airbnb? Not to poke at Tony or anything, but just saying like, <laughs> he's drawn to two destinations. And I, I would be too, if I was doing short-term rentals all over. So I love that, that you have found a way to create a destination. So people are coming to you. Just on your point, you actually, you brought up a really good point there is, uh, so I do tell a lot of the folks that are starting off, it's what I call the golden triangle. So the golden triangle is essentially it's, there's three points on the triangle. One is going to be like a populous city. And then one is going to be a major attraction. And then the third one is strictly based on who your customer is and what that customer is seeking for. So if it's, or looking out, looking for, and so whether that's a hiking trails, bike trails, surf spots, snowboarding areas, whatever that is, that's the third spot of the triangle. And the legs of that triangle need to be less than a 30 minute drive, ideally. Okay. Now, if it's a major attraction like Joshua Tree or something like with Grand Canyon, you can extend it out maybe 40, 45 minutes. But for most folks, I would say starting in that golden triangle is the best bet to set up a business. But what you're indicating that you caught on very quickly, Ashley, is that Absolutely. Once you know, you know, that old saying, once you know the rules, then you break the rules, but you don't want to break the rules before you understand the rules. And so we are, this new location is outside of a golden triangle. However, you hit it right on the dot is then when you do that, you have to create a destination spot. You have to create a space where people, it's so unique and it's so different that people like you understand your customers like, Hey babe, do you want to check this out? They have a floating A-frame here or like, Hey, check this out. They have this tree house that I'm totally willing to drive out to just to experience it for the weekend. And I will pay 300, 350 a night because it's so different. It's way better than any Marriott or embassy suites inside the city. And so, yeah, that's a really good point that you caught on to. Yeah. And I think it's part of it too, is that they're going there to spend time in whatever that unique experience is that they're not there to look or they're not coming there just to serve or to hike or do whatever. It's because they're coming to experience and mostly Instagram themselves all over this unique. I mean, even Tony's Joshua Tree properties, there's so many people that do Instagram photo shoots in those properties because they're so unique. So that's really awesome. And now it has my my wheel spinning of different. <laughs> Did you watch all my videos? The golden shiny object. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, for anybody out there who's first starting out, you just hit on another one. So you're, you're hitting on a lot of the techniques that I use in my properties or, or when we're thinking up of new plans and ideas. Like right now, literally after this conversation at one o'clock, I have a meeting with my business partners over that new piece of project or that new land. And we're going through what you just said is the Instagram ability. And so that's one focal point of our Airbnbs or of our listings. And it requires some creativity and it requires some money or understanding of how to build stuff. But everything that we step, stepped into or step into, and Tony has done a great job. I've seen a couple of his uh, videos where he gives us tours of his places is you, most of our customers today are millennials. Okay. Millennials are reaching their mid thirties early or late thirties, maybe even early forties. I got my numbers right. But regardless, it's they're becoming, they're getting into a place where they have money and they're either starting families or at that point where they're in their careers, where they're, they have a little bit more time, you know, in your twenties, early thirties, you're really hustling, working hard and you don't have time to travel. So most of our guests and a lot of customers that we see have money or discretionary income. And they're in that mid 30 range and they love Instagram. They love TikTok. They love YouTube. They love Facebook. And so we always think about every point. We have different points of contact around the property, around the home, where it's like, where can they take photos for their Instagram, right? We're not going to tell them, it's like, hey, take a photo here. But we want to create a space or an environment where they are willing to take a photo or want to take a photo. And that's huge for the business. I have a friend down in Florida that's doing an insane job, good job of land hacking and venue hacking a property. And most of her business comes from Instagram. Because the hashtags that people create, they then go to her site and they book it. And that's something that's very important 
maybe a little bit more intermediate to advanced, is you eventually want to create different ways of getting guests, not just through Airbnb, but through your own site. And that's a fantastic way of doing it is through Instagram. Dropping so much knowledge here, Kai. I love it, man. We're, we're giving the rookies like the, the PhD of, of short-term rentals and all the, the kind of ninja tricks that go on behind the scenes, man. <laughs> this show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that a long time ago, before I ever started my real estate business, I turned one of my first primary residences into an Airbnb? And that's the extra income that I needed from Airbnb that gave me the confidence to go out and work for myself and eventually quit my nine to five job. And now I have dozens of Airbnbs all over the country. I've even partnered up with the old David Green on a recent property in Scottsdale to take our portfolio to the next level. And of course, we host it on Airbnb. But you don't need to be a full-time real estate investor to start on Airbnb. As a matter of fact, I was self-managing 10 properties while working my 9-to-5 job, so I know anybody can do it. Think about it this way. You're looking for extra income and going on a vacation. Wouldn't it be great to rent out your space and let your property pay for itself while you're gone? I did this one time. I pitched my wife and my roommate because we were house hacking on the idea of renting out our home, and it paid for all of our expenses on a trip to Mexico City. So go and give it a try. It might just change your life just like it did mine. And I really do mean that. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Whether you need to buy or sell or you're just obsessed with looking at homes for sale, Redfin's got you covered. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes to help you see new homes first. And they give you personalized recommendations based on the homes you like so you can find the home that's just right for you, whether that's a cabin, a craftsman, or a castle. With the top-rated Redfin app, you can favorite homes, share listings with others, and schedule tours, even the same day, with a local Redfin agent who can help guide you through the whole home buying process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents have the experience to help get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put towards what matters most to you, like your next home. In fact, last year, Redfin saved home sellers $127 million. No matter where you are in your real estate journey, Redfin can help. Download the Redfin app to get started today. Hiring? Your search is over. Really, there's no need to search. Match instead with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates super fast. Ditch the busy work, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to hire top talent faster. Speaking of top talent, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. But why do I love Indeed? Because I'm busy and scrolling through 300 resumes is not helping my business grow. It's actually making it slow. With Indeed, I can hire faster and know I'm getting someone who can do the job. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to post your jobs with more visibility at Indeed.com slash rookie. Just go to Indeed.com slash rookie right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Indeed.com slash rookie. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Rookies, 2024 is the year to start protecting your rental properties with an LLC. But you don't have to do all the paperwork and filing yourself. Corporate Direct is your professional and affordable option for getting your LLC done right. They handle the state filings, draft your operating agreement, and act as your registered agent. They'll even help you comply with the Corporate Transparency Act, a new federal disclosure law affecting every real estate investor. Corporate Direct is a family business founded by attorney, author, and rich dad advisor Garrett Sutton over 35 years ago. Now, his son Ted is a licensed attorney working with him. Together, they've helped thousands of real estate investors form and maintain their LLCs and protect their assets. If you're trying to build a real estate portfolio, do not skip the LLC. Head over to corporatedirect.com slash biggerpockets to schedule a free 15-minute consultation with an incorporating specialist. Mention Real Estate Rookie and get a $100 discount on your formation. That's corporatedirect.com slash biggerpockets. So we want to move into our deal deep dive. So do you have a specific deal in mind that we can kind of drill down into? Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So first off is tell us what market this deal is in. What city did you buy that deal in? This one is in, I can't give it out. I don't want to give that out because I will say it's outside of Portland. Is that okay. fair? Yeah, fair enough, right? So it's okay, a okay. major, you know, outside of the Portland area. Yeah. And what kind of property was this? Was it land? Was it an actual structure already? What, what was the property characteristics? 
that was why the deal was so interesting. And so it looked like raw land. But what had happened was that it was uh, it was about seven acres and it had been owned by the bank. And there was literally a mansion, like a McMansion that was on it that was just very recently torn down because it was sitting there unfinished for, I think it was about four or five years and it was starting to fall in on itself. And so it was tagged, the property was tagged as having landslide or quote unquote land issues. And so nobody had touched it in this very hot market for I think you literally for like four years being on the market. Wow. Okay. So, and sorry, you said that was how many acres? It was seven acres. Seven acres. Wow. Four years in the market. That is insane. And today's- Four years yeah. on the market. And actually, I think it was actually longer, Tony, than now that I think about it. It was probably six or seven years, but you got to remember it had literally this like almost 11,000 square foot mansion on it that was 60% done and collapsing in on itself. And it had land issues. And so then what happened is when it didn't sell or it was just sitting there for three years, the bank took it back. Remember that that happened right around the recession. And then they were forced to demo that, that home. And then still it had tagged land issues and they didn't do a very good job of cleaning up the site. And so a lot of people didn't want to buy it because of that. Got it. So what did you end up purchasing this property for? So it was originally, the land itself was originally listed at 335 and I I eventually got it for 90,000. 90,000? Yeah. It was a lot of negotiating. <laughs> All right. So, a lot of work. okay. All right. We'll, we'll circle back to how the heck you did that and just, but let's keep running through the deal, right? So, once you closed in this property, what did you do with the land? I started building on it. Obviously, I cleared it. And this is the, this was kind of like my, uh, I guess if that downtown place was my cornerstone, I guess the, <laughs> the next corner was this property. And so I'm speaking to you from this property right now. And so I personally built the home on it. I, I cleared it, excavated it, and then built the house that you guys see. And then also everything on the channel, the shipping container, the great glamp site, that's all on this property too. And so that was a lot of work. But before that though, before we developed all that, we had to address the land issue because the county already knew about it. And I definitely didn't want to build another home that was going to have sinking issue or landslide issues. And so there's a little bit of a gamble there that I had to take to close on it just to back up a little bit. So if you don't mind, is that okay, Tony? But back up a little yeah, bit. Yeah, no, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So essentially when I was negotiating buying the land, the reason why people didn't want to buy it was because of the land issue and the previous house began to sink. And so again, market analysis is one thing that I always tell people. And market analysis isn't always sitting from a computer and clicking on different links and different numbers and I'm trying to gather data. A lot of it is getting on the ground and then reaching out to people. And that's what I did. So I first started reaching out to the county and then I even reached out to the neighbors and I was asking the neighbors what was going on. And you'd be super surprised at how much information neighbors know, especially on the country and rural land. They know virtually everything. And so... I was lucky enough that my neighbor that I'm still very, very good friends with, he was actually a builder and he said, oh yeah, they're having land issues because they didn't bring in the fill correctly. They didn't bring in structural fill. They just put in fill dirt and they just built on top of it. And anybody who's new, you need very solid ground to build any type of structure, especially an 11,000 square foot mansion. And they didn't do this. So the, the home started to sink. Now, coincidentally, we're also on a landslide area because it's, it's overlooking like this valley it has beautiful views and everything. And those two combined created a story in people's head is because of the landslide issues, the house sunk. But in reality, based off what I talked to the county and I dug into geotech reports from the past and then talking to the neighbor, I started to formulate a photo or a picture in my head. I was like, I don't think it was so much about the landslide issue. I think it's more of how the house was constructed. And then that's when I brought and I hired a geotech engineer. And this is the part where you have to take that leap of faith where I created the scenario in my head that I thought was more realistic than what people were painting out to be. And I had to pay that geotech, I think it was $2,500. I think it was $2,500 at the time to come out to the site and say that the ground was okay to build on. And if I didn't, I was out that $2,500. If he said, nope, it's landslide issues, then I was out that money. But I took that gamble and he came back. He's like, yeah. This is perfect. You just need to dig past this fill dirt and you can build on that ground. You'd be hundred percent fine. And that's when I made my offer, but the bank didn't know that. And I made that offer and they, they gladly took it because they thought it was a landslide risk. That is phenomenal, but that's great, right? Because I think the lesson to pull out there, Kai, is just because a property has been sitting for a long time, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's still not a good investment. 
right? If you can identify the value that lies inside of that property and leverage whatever information you have to get a good deal, then you're doing exactly what a real estate investor should be doing. Like, I, you don't have to share this if you're not comfortable, Kai, but do you know around what that property is now worth today? With all the structures, it's worth around 1.2 to 1.3. Look at that. How much did you put into it for the structures, would you say? Like total? Remember, I built it myself. So the labor was all me. So there was about, in structures, about probably 450, 450, maybe 475 around there. So great equity build up, almost double, more than double. Yeah, it's great equity. And, and it allows you, not only does it allow me to then go out and get, if I wanted leverage and get loans against it, I have a HELOC against it, obviously. But just that proven, remember that track record, the results. Now you get people like, hey, can you come help us with this other project? Hey, we saw you do this. Hey, you did this. And then you're able to open yourself up to a lot more other deals because of the results that you have in the past. And that's one of them. Well, thank you so much for sharing that with us. The last thing I wanted to know was just the financing piece on the container homes. Are you able to get financing on those or is it just kind of because it's on your primary residence that you've been able to finance the property? or get that line of credit? Yeah, that's a great question that I get all the time. So I actually had a couple of different ways that I could have done it. So I'm paying for it cash, but I do have a HELOC. That's always my backup. And then also if I wanted to, I could have gotten a mortgage on it because they are permitted and engineered. And so a lot of times this is why I talk to folks about land hacking is that you want permitted structures. You don't have to stick to permanent structures because eventually, you know, trailers, glamp sites, that type of stuff is because it creates so much equity and you can get loans on them. And so just because shipping containers are unique and different, it doesn't mean that it's not financeable. And so a lot of times banks just want to make sure that the money is safe, that whatever the money they're giving you, that they can recoup it. And typically you go through permitting engineers, architects, and you can show them that it's going to be at value, if not higher. They'll be more than happy to lend it to you, especially if you have a good credit score, assets, collateral, and all that stuff, and a good relationship with that bank. And so in my situation, I did have three different scenarios, whether I could do cash, HELOC, or a loan. And I decided to go at it with cash for this project. It is probably a lot easier to repossess a storage container than it is to foreclose on a house, too. <laughs> yeah. so. you, just, you just pick it up and <laughs> get a big yeah. tow truck. Take it off the property. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right. Well, Kai, thanks for giving us that rookie deal, man. I love kind of going behind the scenes on how you put things together. And I'm sure there are a lot of rookies now who are going to be looking up how to start land hacking. So thank you for giving them that, that new phrase, that new idea, because I'm sure you just inspired a lot of people, man. What I want to hit on next, Kai, is I want to take us to our, our mindset segment. This is where we, we kind of get in the, you know, get into the psyche of the guest on the show and see what nuggets we can pull out for our rookies. So if you think back to when you first started, what were some of the misconceptions or assumptions you made that turned out to not be true about becoming a real estate investor? Right. Because to add some more context there, I think a lot of times rookie investors, they build up so much fear around getting started fear that this might go wrong, fear that this might go wrong, fear that this won't work out. But when they get started, they realize that some of those fears weren't true. So what was what was that story for you? What did that look like? Oh, man, that's a good one. I think a big fear that I had, and just I, it comes from my family, is the fear of losing what you already have, okay? Because you work so hard to get to a certain point, it could be a financial, it could be a social status, it could be your job, it could be your position in your, career, in your career, whatever that may be, is that if you go all in or you even step a toe or put a foot into this other world, you could potentially lose what you've already built up. And that was a fear that I had that was very real. It's like, so I've already saved up at this point in time at each stage. I, I still have it now. It's like, okay, I've already made X amount of dollars. I have this in my bank account. If I do this deal and then I can't sell it or I can't rent it out, now I'm out my money and I'm now stuck in my job for even more or I have to get a second job. That was my biggest fear. Stepping out of it is not over leveraging yourself is what I found out because at first I was like, you know, like every entrepreneur has this, you have scope creep, right? Okay, I can start off with this. And you're like, oh, wait, wait, but if I do this, then I can do this and I can do this and I can make this. And then you, scope creep just keeps on growing, growing, growing until you have this massive deal and you're like, it's way out of my league. And so for folks, I say, start small. And that's what I did is I started really small. And at that time, I took advantage of the time, right? 0% down interest only loan. And I got into it's classified as a condo, but it really, really was like it was kind of like a quadplex type of building is what I first purchased, or just one unit of that quadplex. And 
I got into that instead of the single family home or even the town home that were significantly more expensive because I could afford that. And then I proved and I learned the skills that I need to learn in that smaller deal that's not as sexy or attractive, but then I built experience and skill sets that I was able to apply to the next deal and then the next deal and the next deal, next deal. And it just slowly grew from there. And so if you're scared and you're frightened by it, I like to use, I always say to folks is like, use numbers to prove you right or prove you wrong. The challenging part is being unbiased when you're running the numbers. And so when I go into new deals, I try to be as neutral as possible to either prove my initial reaction or my gut instinct correct or incorrect. And everything is based off of numbers now, these days. Um, Every once in a while, you make a gut check, you know, whether you use red or blue for painting or something like that. But when it comes to numbers, I don't, yeah, I don't mess around with that. I try to make sure that makes sense. And the numbers make sense. And if you have a business partner or somebody that's more educated in an area than you, then I would run those numbers by fresh set of eyes and say, hey, what do you think about this? And honestly, today I have two business partners that I do that all the time with. And it either helps me get into a new deal or I get out of a deal. Kai, there's always like Kai, one was, part. Yeah, there's always like one part of the episode where we're like, you got to go back and re-listen to it. And Kai, that was this part for that episode, man. Like you dropped so many good things about like the technical side of how to get started. But what you just said about pushing past that fear, that's what the rookies needed to hear. That's what they needed to hear to get that first deal done, man. So that was beautiful. Love it. And your worst case scenario was that you went back to your job. Yeah. And that's what, I mean, that's a lot of people's everyday life is going back to a job. And you hear that a lot too, like in the fire community, the financial independence, oh, well, what happens if the stock market crashes or you lose this, whatever. And it's like, okay, well, then I go back to working a job just like everybody else. And I just, one other thing on that too, was that you talked about how you could afford your house hack on your own and you didn't go too big or buy something else. And I think that can be a a real sense of security for someone who does have a fear of getting started will then buy something that you could afford on your own. But if you're house hacking, that's just even bittersweet that you're getting maybe cash flow or you're having it paid for or part of it paid for. But taking that step where you're not going above and beyond and buying this outrageous house because you want a house hack, if you can afford it on your own, then, you know, that's kind of like your security there that maybe if you don't have roommates for a couple months, you're being able to pay it on your own worst case scenario, like everybody else who pays their mortgage. Ash, you did another great job of just kind of digging right to the core. And absolutely, that was the first thing. And just by you saying it reminded me, it's another lesson from Rich Dad Poor Dad. I think it was Rich Dad Poor Dad. It might have been Tony. I was a Tony Robinson fan when I was really um, young too. Actually, when Tony, when I first saw your name pop up, I was like, you know, Tony Robbins. I get that all the time. I was like, dude, that's so cool. I'm meeting Tony Robbins. But people are often disappointed when they see me in person. They're like, this is not who I thought I was coming to meet today. Yeah, I was like, you should have heard when they told me my co-host was going to be Tony Robbins. (laughs) Straight to the top. Uh, no, it's, I think it was either Tony Robbins or Rich Dad, Poor Dad, or Robert Kiyosaki, but they said, what's your worst case scenario? Play it out. Honestly, is it you sleeping on the streets in the gutter, no food, and your family just like leaves you? And I was like, for most Americans, most people, that's not the case. And if you actually think that through what your worst case at 21 years old, I'm like, oh, my worst case is I'm living. My worst case is I sleep at my mom's place or my family's place. That was my worst case scenario. I could lose everything and I just go back to my mom's house and I rebuild and I reconstruct and I get back out there. Okay. But I knew that I wasn't going to be homeless. I wasn't going to have to go to the homeless shelter or anything like that. And at that time, it's a lot of money. Don't get me wrong. I think it was like $20,000 or $22,000 in my bank account. If I lost it, okay. I was 21 years old. I know I can make it again. I know folks are starting at all different stages, but when you really run through your worst case scenario, and I'm really truly mean your worst case scenario, like sleeping in the gutter, is that really what would happen? Or do you just have to restart in a family's home? Now, I know not all of us have that opportunity, but playing out that scenario helps us make a decision moving forward. And then what you just brought up, Ashley, is the safety nets. Whenever I get into the deal, even the deal that I'm getting into with the two, uh, I don't think I said this in the beginning. The new deal that we're getting into is a 267-acre piece of property that I got for $0 to get access to or to acquire. And so the worst or the, the safety nets in all of my properties, I always run the numbers. And so it's either house hack, short-term rental to make the significant cash flow play, or do I have to long-term rent it out to make maybe a couple hundred bucks? 
Now, if that doesn't even work, if I have to drop the rent rate by even 35% just to get somebody into the house to help pay the mortgage, how long can I survive losing $400 a month because I have to make up the difference between what rent is and what uh, my mortgage payment is? Okay. And if I, that number is like, oh, I can afford $500 in a perpetuity. I, I can do that forever. I make way more than $500. Or at that time, he's like, I can do that for two years or I can do it for six months. Right. That helps gives you a game plan. And then the worst case scenario is I have to liquidate. If I have to sell this property, how much money do I get or how much money do I lose? And you get, you play that game long enough and you make the right strategic decisions so you don't ever go bankrupt or you don't lose or even your worst case scenario or your bad case scenario is where you have to rent it out to somebody and you lose $300 a month, you can survive and ride out those recessions. And you do that long enough and you get to a point where today, like 2020, Tony, I'm not sure if you are, or Ashley, if you guys were both inside their short-term rental market at that time when the pandemic hit, but we literally could have sat on our properties for a decade because we already went through that mindset of setting up all of those safety nets. And worst case scenario, absolute worst case scenario, if we had to sell some of our properties or whatnot, we would have made so much money just from the equity play that we had set up several years back, right? So you have the equity safety net, you have the long-term rental safety net, you have your cash reserve safety net, and then you obviously have all the cash flows from the short-term rentals and such. And when you do that, it reduces the fear of going into new deals is because you already have a system in place with several layers of safety nets. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I think it needs to be constantly reinforced to rookie investors and even experienced investors because you get get so caught up in the growth and the scaling and let's go, let's go, let's go. And even for you, you said it was two years, I think, before you bought your second property and then, you know, gradually snowballed and you've, you know, accumulating 257 acres now. That's awesome. So yeah, definitely rookies take that away, like set up those securities, set up those exit strategies when you're looking at a deal. So I want to go to our rookie request line now. Anybody can call in at 1-888-5-ROOKIE and leave a voicemail for Tony and I. We may choose it to play on an episode for a guest to answer your question. Hi, my name is Rhea out of Chicago, Illinois, and I'm calling to ask how to buy my second property. Where do you get the financing from? Do you really have to have 20% down cash to buy it? Thanks. Bye. So a lot of times what you can do is if your first property, I'm assuming it's your, your first property is probably your primary property. If it's not your primary property, you're house hacking it and you have income. If you pay taxes on that income, then you can actually use that to go to the bank and say like, hey, I have my nine to five job, my W-2, and I also have this rental income or this other income from this other source. Reporting, that's the, that's where I was thinking of. And then also... This is when I had to use co-signers. When you're young and you're starting off and maybe your salary is not as growing as fast as it needs to be to be able to purchase multiple properties, use co-signers if you have it, whether, but you have to make sure that these co-signers are people that obviously clearly trust you and that you also trust them. Other options too is probably hard money, hard money lenders, where it's basically private equity, where it's a short-term loan, but you want to be very careful that you read the terms because interest rates are usually higher and the terms are a lot shorter, but that's, they usually assess the value of the property itself instead of like your W-2 or your income, but they're going to be digging into you in different ways. And then also seller finance. Seller finance is probably one of my favorites. That's how we just basically um, kind of got into this other deal that we just kind of closed or working on closing on right now is seller finance. Basically, you can set up whatever the terms are that you want to negotiate with that seller. And at the end of the day, if you don't pay it or you miss it, they get their property back. And so when people are first starting out, that's usually what I kind of point them in the direction with. But the financial markers are really your best bet if you really want to grow and expand is figure out how do you increase your income or reported income if you want to work with traditional lenders or you're going to have to be strategic about co-signers and maybe even hard money lenders or seller finance deals. Awesome, Kai. So before we, we wrap up, I just want to give a quick shout out to our, our rookie rock star for this week. And this week's rookie rock star is Cody G. And Cody just got an offer accepted for not one, not two, but three duplexes. Each one is a two one at 800 square feet. And Cody said that this pushes me to my lean phi number. So Cody's at 18 apartments and two houses with $3,200 in monthly cash flow, 
all of them on 20 notes. And then he's getting another 3000 or so in mortgage pay down. So it took him four years to make this happen, but Cody is absolutely crushing it. So Cody, big shout out to you for, uh, for, for hitting your five number. That's what everybody wants, right? That's awesome. That's so awesome. Yeah. Kai, thank you so much for joining us today. Can you tell everyone a little bit more about you or where they can reach out to you and get some more information about you? Sure. Just go to my website, kaiandrew.com. I have a bunch of free stuff on there where you can see my spreadsheets on how I analyze deals. I have PDFs and guides on there. It's all all free guys. Just uh, if you go there, you're more than welcome to take a look at it. Or you can just join me on Instagram, just Kai J. Andrew on Instagram. And yeah. I'm really responsive, typically, through email or messages. So if you have any questions, just shoot me uh, your question. Yeah, Kai, you've also got a really cool YouTube channel. Don't uh, don't sell yourself short there, <laughs> man. Oh, I appreciate it. Uh, bring that yeah. up. Yeah, so I also have a YouTube channel, Kai Andrew, um, where I talk about short-term rentals, my journey, all my projects that I'm working on from the glam sites to this new deal that, that I just published that video yesterday about the property that we just got. So if you're interested in that, watch that. And then just short-term rentals. And then basically kind of like what we're discussing here is just getting to your fire number or getting to retire early or get to your financial independence earlier. And so we talk about all that type of stuff on my channel too. Well, thank you so much. This has been really awesome. We've loved all the information you've given us on short-term rentals and your advice too. It's been really great. Thank you so much for having me. This is really cool. Yeah. I'm Ashley at Wealth From Rentals, and he's Tony at Tony J. Robinson on Instagram. And we will be back on Saturday with a rookie reply. Have a great week, everyone. The market is changing and finding your way can be tricky. Rates shift, headlines whirl, but your goal hasn't changed. You want financial freedom. And the best investors know it's not about timing the market. It's about time in the market. If you're ready to get into the real estate investing game or take your game to the next level, finding an investor-friendly agent is your next step. With BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in minutes. Just head to biggerpockets.com slash deals, enter a few details about what and where you want to buy, and boom, instantly match with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. There's free resources only available at biggerpockets.com slash deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com slash deals. That's biggerpockets.com slash deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all host and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. Bigger Pockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.